Okay, if you're, if you're hearing this, it means that you have delved back into the early episodes of the show. And whilst we really appreciate that, we just want to give a, I guess, a little disclaimer, Mateus. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, the early episodes, I was editing this whole thing on a very amateur platform, and we basically just recorded a Zoom call. So um, that's why the quality isn't, you know, awesome. Yeah, we, we didn't have proper microphones. We didn't have proper headphones. But thankfully, it's grown grown into something that's, that's fairly successful now. We were able to have proper equipment and hire people to take care of all that pesky um, audio side of things. But we just wanted to put this out there and let people know that if if you do check out the early episodes and the sound quality isn't perfect, which we know it isn't, please just jump ahead and listen to some of those layer episodes. I don't know if you've got a couple that you particularly like that people can start on, Matthias. Oh, I mean, some of my favorites are, of course, uh, the Howl episodes we did with the Ed Gamester or um, uh, the talks that we had with uh, Shane as well. They were hilarious. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Obviously, we've got fan favorites like Ina Selvik and all of Highland who joined us for an episode. Um, and Lisa Gedalia was one of my personal favorites. Yes, and Terry Gunnell as well has some very interesting talks with some really high-profile professors. So go check him out. And now we're just dropping names. Now we're just dropping names. <laughs> <laughs> no, we thank you for, for starting out of the early episodes. And please do listen to them. We, you know, we put, still put a lot of love and effort into them. But you do have to bear with us on the on the audio side of things. It does get better as you go through the episodes. And, and I guess it's quite a... Some people enjoy seeing us go through that motion and go from amateur to a little less amateur, I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let's jump into the show. to the fourth episode of the Nordic Mythology Podcast. I'm Daniel Farrand. I'm the co-owner of the company Horns of Odin, and I'm joined, as always, by Dr. Matthias Nordvig. Hello, everyone. So we're going to start by um, talking about symbols, or the episode is about symbols, but we're just going to do a quick sort of recap onto last episode and speak about how the runes were used as symbols um, and then go from there. Yeah, so... Yes, we talked a lot last time about uh, how how the un- the runes are used in different ways as uh, as symbols today. We talked about how they have had a role in um, some white supremacist stuff and so on, but also just are used culturally in Scandinavia at least uh, as as symbols and and. Um, and by other people um, uh, elsewhere in the world who uh, who have some kind of affinity, sometimes and quite often, I think also spiritual affinity to to, to Nordic mythology and the, the Viking Age. I don't know if people were, you know, maybe a little disappointed to hear how <laughs> how, uh, uh, how the runes perhaps aren't that at least not in a magical sense tied that closely to the Viking Age. But I uh, I, I do want to say that. Um, this idea of bind runes that you guys at the Horns of Odin, for instance, put on T-shirts and so on. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, 
that that is uh, that is something that we do see. Um, we see it. Uh, we see pine runes being um, carved before the Viking Age, so 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 before seven hundreds, and then again after the Viking Age, they show up in uh, uh, in carvings and such things too. So so bind runes are, are a thing, you know, <laughs> um, especially uh, you know the the T rune, the tier rune stacked on top of each other. Um, I think we see uh, one that is. Uh, what is it? Four, four T runes on top of each other, and another one where we have six or maybe even eight. Um, so, so that's something that's uh, that that happens, and we see other types of bind runes as well. The the G rune um, combined with uh, with the long A rune, and and so on. So, um, uh, bind runes definitely was something that that the people were using back in the day now it's a it's of course a, a curious thing that we don't really have much from the viking age and this is the general thing when it comes to like uh, uh sort of like runes and magic symbolism and and such things that there's the viking age seems to have sort of like a dip in all of that now one of the reasons my personal theory uh is per, uh, that this is probably because this is the period where Scandinavians are becoming Christian. And you see, Denmark converts to Christianity in 965, Norway in 995, and um, uh, Iceland in the year 1000. And uh, Sweden comes a little later, probably around 1080, around that time. And it makes sense, I think, to that, that, that anything that's sort of associated with that old pagan belief um, will probably disappear um, more heavily in this period because this is where people are like, now we're Christian, right? Um, burn that temple, uh, erase those runes, that kind of stuff. That might be part of it. So that's probably why we don't see a lot of bind runes, for, for instance, um, in the Viking Age, because they're definitely associated with the pre-Christian traditions. Um, and in, even, even if people are still using runes for writing, and um, and and so so this you know similar things as we also talked about last time happened in uh, uh, during the Reformation at least according to the Swedish scholar uh, Olaus Magnus uh, they burned uh, uh, books with runes in them probably because they thought this was some kind of pagan stuff so let's get rid of it so maybe the Viking Age was sort of like a, another kind of like. Um, uh, Reformation age in, in Scandinavian history where, you know, these newly Christianized Vikings, they were like, get rid of all the old stuff uh, because now we have to demonstrate our, our servitude to the Lord or something like that. <laughs> so to quickly just pull it back to, to kind of the original point, when it comes to, to bind runes, did they take their own meaning or was it... Because, I mean, from the books, the, the few books I've read on runes, I've seen instances where one or two runes are laid together and they, they still take the, the letter characteristics of those two runes. It's, it's almost like a space-saving instrument. Um, so, but obviously when you're talking about six or eight of the tier runes on top of each other, I'm assuming that's not representative of six or eight Ts or... Yes. No, it's, it's, it's probably not. And some of them are definitely, you know, a way of like uh, economizing with space. 
Um, but uh, there are also, uh, I think you could safely say that there are distinct magical characteristics to some of them. And especially the one with the, with the tea room, right? Um, this, this, this one has been related to the Eric poem, Sigurdrivumal, uh, where we have this curious stanza. So, so Sigurdriva is a Valkyrie who is um, recounting um, uh, uh, like rune magic, basically. And one of the things that she says is uh, in stanza six, she says, victory runes you must know if you want to have victory and cut them on the hilt of your sword, uh, some on the sword rings, some on the sword plates, and twice invoke Tyr's name. So here we have the concept of victory and concept of runes and Tyr as a deity who also appears in the runic poems associated with the tea rune, who's supposed to be mentioned twice. So this, this looks like it's, it's part of some kind of um, ancient tradition where uh, for victory, perhaps, some kind of war magic, you, uh, you stack that tea rune and there's probably some kind of um, magical incantation associated with it. At least that's, that's part of that theory um, uh, surrounding the tea rune itself. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I'd say that th- there's something to it. There's something to the idea that these runes, if you combine them in certain ways, um, then you get some kind of magic symbol. And there's also, uh, you know, a lot of theory on, on uh, uh, these secret runes um, and um, how they were... Uh, um, or cryptic runes, how you can, for instance, use numbers. Um, um, so basically the, the number that each rune has, and then you can combine that uh, uh, a stave with a little smaller staves representing the number of the rune in the line of runes. And that way also then um, create some kind of um, uh, secret um, uh, writing system or... Um, some kind of um, uh, symbol, I guess, that, that that has more than just you know a letter value. Some kind of you know magical uh, quality to it. You can even make them as little birds or fish, which are also seen in various forms. Um, uh, for instance, from uh, you know the those previous mentioned descriptions and um, from Bergen Berk- in in Bergen where we have all of those little inscriptions from the medieval period. Um, so yeah, there's, a, there's something to it. And, um, and I'm sure that uh, people have uh, seen this stuff as like, you know, potent symbols when, mm-hmm. when they saw it and used it. Yeah, I mean, the, the secret and sort of coded runes was something I found fascinating when I first came across it. And I just kind of want to pull back and maybe try and, explain what they are because I assume most people haven't seen them or are un you know unfamiliar with them. Um you could probably neat neaten it up if I get my explanation <laughs> wrong. But from my understanding it tends to be you will have a vertical a vertical line or a, a stave and the rooms have been separated up into three three groups of is it a five 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 four or, or 
something along those lines. Yeah, um, it, it depends on the uh, the, the the writing system. Okay. You have the uh, the Elder Futhark. Uh, looks like it has uh, three groups with eight in them, right? Okay. Um, yeah, and, and so then you, so yeah. you then, is it the the left of the stave? You make one mark, two marks, or three marks, depending on the group. So you know, if you make one to the left, and then you make three to the right, you are saying it's group one, third rune along, or if you make two to the left, and then five to the right, it's then group two. Yeah. Fifth rune along. Yeah, um, that is, that's the system that's used on the Rökstone from Östergötland uh, in, in Sweden. Um, it, it's one of the famous stones, um, and at, on t- uh, at the top of it, we have like these uh, um, uh, staves, exactly as you described them, right? Crossed um, with one another. Mm-hmm. And, um, and um, uh, these, these runes are you know, called hook runes, um, in old Norse is Hahal Runar. Um, so yeah, that's that's definitely one of those uh, uh, cool examples of of, mm-hmm. of secret cryptic runes. <laughs> this is kind of a little bit off topic, but do we know the the reason why they exist? Um, because I imagine you wouldn't have created something like that just to pass a pass, you know, pass a note or something like that. It feels like there must be some a reason for it but i think i i, I think there's a, a, a you know it's a, people have always been interested in making cryptic uh, mm-hmm. scripts right um uh they if we go deep in sort of like you know the concepts of like religious magic and so on uh one one thing that you can, i think you can say about all of this is that um if you can sort of garnish your your religious experience with a language that is hard to understand for other people um, and uh, scripts and symbols that 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 seem mystic and mysterious to you um, then 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 it seems like the the religious practice gains more value right and I think that's also what we're seeing with when it, in, in modern times with with the use of runes in that way. Uh, people uh, have an enhanced sort of spiritual experience of it when they when they use runes in in their their rituals and so on. If they're new pagans, right? So 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 it makes perfect sense that uh, that the people back then would also come up with this. Um, uh, I think at least that's part of it. And, and of course, then, then there's also the other thing. It's like if you have a code language, then you can send secret messages to one another. Say you you got married off to the wrong dude somewhere, and <laughs> and you have a lover back in on on the island yeah. of Gotland, right? <laughs> send yeah. him a secret message. That kind of stuff. Um, kings that they, that need to send um, important messages to their uh, uh, allies over on yeah. the other side, and all that kind of stuff. So that's part of it too, I think. There's always sneaky going on. Right? <laughs> Humans are devious. <laughs> That's it, yeah, exactly. Uh, there, there, there are several of these, you know, types of, of, of secret runes. Um, we have the twig runes from Meishow. Um, we have, um, that's in, in, in the Orkneys. We have uh, the East Runar as well. And um, 
it looks like they did, they, you know, they came up with a lot of different uh, ways of, of, of being sneaky with their runes back then. <laughs> and I think one thing to say is also that, you know, the person who might have written something in these runes back when they were invented might have seen them very differently than what people have then perceived them as later on, right? It's very much easier if you if you see like these uh, runic symbols and and they were just like some kind of code. Uh, let's say he was trying to send send a message to his uh, old uh, uh, lover or something like that, and um, and then you know later on somebody finds an inscription somewhere and then they're like, oh, that's got to be some kind of magic symbol. That's also of course one way to look at it, right? That we we put a little more emphasis on this now than than they might have done back then. You never know. <laughs> no, you know. I mean, that's kind of the beauty of it. Whatever we find, you've kind of got to find a place for it, and and almost it it is a bit of detective work, and almost and also a lot of guesswork trying to to figure out what they actually were. And I'm sure there's a lot of things that that people have got completely wrong when they were may have just been something you know completely you know not you know not a major major thing but it's kind of been blown up in in modern in modern culture when the reality is it was maybe a little bit boring maybe it was i mean uh, you know we also have that's one of the things we should consider we have a very specific idea of spirituality and religion right and ideas of magic, for instance. And, um, you know, in, in other cultures, that is very different from the way that we see it in the Western world, right? A lot of the ways that we perceive these things have, of course, been defined by Christianity. And, you know, back then, before Christianity had become a thing in Scandinavia, they might have had a much more chill perspective on, you know, doing that kind of stuff, right? Um, you know, uh, Doing doing some kind of magic, for instance, to making uh, cryptic symbols and um, you know doing uh, curious rituals at night or something like that might have been a pretty standard common thing, you know, just like going grocery shopping today. Who knows? Like we we can't know exactly how they felt about these things and how you know woo mysterious and witchy they felt when they did it. <laughs> yeah, I think I think that's a good point because. Certainly, my my thought has always been that I guess the more that we learn and the more that science shows how things happen, we almost lose that spirituality because we've got a got an explanation for things. Whereas if you were, you know, a thousand years ago or eleven hundred years ago, and you don't necessarily understand, well, you don't understand things like lightning or earthquakes or floods or just just famine of crops. These things you you don't have a logical explanation because it just doesn't exist yet. So the logical and, the, and probably the most rational thing to them at the time is a god. Mm-hmm. And I guess so. So you are you will then if that is your belief, then you are obviously going to be more inclined to want to please the god through ritual, rituals, magic, sacrifices, and those kind of things. Mm-hmm. But I mean, you know, it's uh, you could see this as their logical explanation, right? And mm-hmm. and their uh, disaster mitigation. Today, you know, in order to to uh, deal with floods, we 
uh, build levees and dams and so on, right? And um, I mean, they also did that back then, but 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 uh, but there was also that component of magic to it, right? And that was just that was just part of it. Um, maybe they saw it as a very much as a functional thing, in many ways. Um, that wasn't particularly, um, you know, um, auspicious or anything like that. I mean, one thing that we have to consider is that uh, the expectation that comes with Christianity and the way that Christianity functions as a spirituality for people is uh, often this idea of like a mystery that 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 is there's like a component of the belief, right? And we can't know if, if that's how people thought of their beliefs back then, right? We can't know if, um, if, their, um, uh, if their ritual needs and spiritual needs were tied to, for instance, the idea of a deep connection to a god, or if it was more based off of like uh, you know, some, some, some more kind of like transactional way of seeing it. It's just like, oh, well, you know, I, I pay you something to leave me alone or something like that, yeah. right? There can be so many different ways. And we also have to consider, you know, the psychology of people. You know, people think differently about religion. And, you know, some people in the Viking Age might have had those, uh, those needs for, for the deep mysteries. And others might not have, right? Just like today, you, you see people who um, fill their beliefs, whatever it might be, with the deep mysteries. And then you see people who have more of sort of what we could perhaps call a rational approach to it or something like that. Um, and that's, that's how humans function too. So, so the, there's a pretty big variety, I think, also in the ways that people would have approached it back then. Um, but, you know, if, um, if making, making uh, magic symbols and doing ritual sacrifices and, and incantations and so on was the standard thing, right, back then, then... I think we should perhaps see that as, as sort of like the standard thing of going to church today or going to the mosque, right? That's, uh, that's how you do, do religion. And that's how they would have done their religion, right? Yeah, I think and you've got to be conscious not to, to, to basically make a separation of how we live today and how they would have lived then. And it's too easy to kind of judge them by our standards of, of living today and how we see things and and almost just take for granted the knowledge that we have and and not kind of just put yourself in the position of somebody then who just doesn't have the knowledge we have and, and so they have to find explanations that were perfectly rational and that we would have more than likely believed if we were around at that time. Exactly, yeah. And, then, and the, the, the other thing is also, you know, Christianity as a culture, in Europe has existed for 1500 years and has been defining these uh, pagan rituals, for instance, and later on what it called witchcraft and so on as, as something uh, dark, scary, um, uh, covert, um, because it didn't fit into uh, the perspective of Christianity at the time. And this of course also has left sort of a cultural impression on us when we look at these things, right? Um, and that's that's that again bears into that uh, fact that well to those people back then these kinds of things might have just been like oh shrug whatever that's what we do you know 
Yeah, I think that's a, that's a good point because to to people who aren't necessarily in our community, to you know, to outsiders, quote unquote, they if you say the word pagan, I think a lot of them would have like a negative connotation of it. They would have this, like you say, this dark kind of image of, of somebody that probably wears all black and has like has a pentagram or something. I, that's what I imagine that, that somebody on the outside would would think of, which obviously isn't the truth. But that's a, that's a that's a lasting effect of this this negative propaganda that the Christianity used against against kind of heathenry and, and paganism. Yeah, absolutely right. And this is a way that uh, um, you know you've been separating people across the European continent for for thousands of years at this point, right? Um, a, a, the, the, uh, some of the Latest examples are, of course, the Sami people in northern Scandinavia, um, who still in the uh, in the 1700s uh, were not really Christianized, right? And 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 they were called pagans. They were um, they were persecuted um, by by the Norwegian and Swedish uh, governments, and um, and that. Uh, uh, and then they were, you know, for, uh, in many ways, forcefully Christianized. They were uh, uh, their their culture was um, was being persecuted and, and taken away from them. Their language, and um, and that was that was sort of a. Um, um, I mean, we look at that as atrocities now, right? But 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 to the people back then, that was sort of like common sense. You have to do that because you have to bring people into Christianity because Christianity is the right way to do things, right? Um, and that's that. That's the latest example of it. But this, these processes have been going on in Europe uh, for, for, for long before then, right? Um, and and uh, that's uh, that's how um, that's how you know one system of power, of course, deals with another system of power. That's really what it comes down to, right? <laughs> um, yeah. Systems of power. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's it. Right. So before we get too far off, <laughs> off subject. Uh, let's pull it back and let's look at the Wagner, which is one of the the most interesting symbols. Um, I think you've probably got a lot to a lot to say on it. A lot. <laughs> Hopefully, you know, get some of the facts out there. I mean, there's there's probably plenty of misconceptions that I have. Um, so I'm sure there's there's going to be a lot to learn all around for for everyone when it comes to this. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Let's get into it. <laughs> I was yeah. trying to I was trying to avoid it because uh, <laughs> or by rambling instead because this is uh, uh, you know this is going to be a touchy subject, right? So the Valknut. Um, I'm going to have to quote um, my 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 friend Erik Sturason who has the. Uh, uh, the podcast Brute Norse um, that I'm a big fan of. Um, what he says about the Valknut is, it's bogus, it's a sham. <laughs> <laughs> so for, for those listeners who, who aren't familiar with the symbol, it is uh, uh, these, um, uh, uh, these three um, triangles that are interlaced with one another. It comes in, in, in a little bit in different shapes. Um, but that's typically how you uh, you see it in in modern representations. Um, now, there's uh, no evidence for 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 the Valknut 
as sort of a, a, a Viking, a, a Viking age symbol in the sense of it call, being called the Valknut. Um, the the uh, three um, uh, uh, triangles that are interlaced do show up in uh, in different uh, depictions. For instance, on the Stora Hammer um, uh, uh, picture stone from around the 800s in Gotland. Um, it also shows up in um, other kinds of uh, depictions. And so there, there was a, a symbol that looked like that back then. But it wasn't called the Valknut. Um, we don't know what it was called. And it didn't have any connections to Odin, and it's not really, it doesn't have anything to do with being the knot of the slain, which is a common conception. And it most definitely does not have anything to do with this, uh, another bogus idea, this idea that there are nine Norse worlds. <laughs> so I'm sorry to say, guys, there's, there's, there's nothing uh, uh, behind all of those uh, theories that you can read on that symbol out there. Um, do do you know where the where it picked up the name Valkno? Is there a kind of time time throughout history where we can say this is the point where it's adopted the name and and why, or is it a case of it's just kind of picked that up and and just attached itself there, and, and we don't really know what caused it to? Yeah. So. Um... Uh, the, 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 the word Valknute comes from uh, Norwegian and um, uh, from later Norwegian. Uh, and it is actually um, a, uh, um, a, 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 a sort of a, this interlaced square um, um, ornamentation that you can find in um, uh, embroideries and and other um, uh, um, like textiles. And um, today, if you go through uh, Norway or Denmark, and I believe also Sweden, it is, it is the symbol that is used to uh, show on, on you know, road signs that there is some kind of historical marker. And, um, and it is also known as the St. John's Cross. Uh, so um, I think that says a lot. Um, now, going off on um, on what aforementioned Edik Storesund uh, uh, has written on his uh, webpage on this subject, uh, he says that the etymology is uncertain, uh, but it's no given that the prefix Val is the same word as Old Norse Valer, meaning uh, slain, war dead, and so on, uh, though this is commonly assumed. Uh, there are other equally plausible explanations for the prefix Val, um, for instance, the Old Norse Valknut, which means French nut. Um, and you'd be uh, hard-pressed to find a connection uh, to the triangular simpler, uh, simple either way, end quote. So that's where it stands. Um, it is it, it, the, the word itself, Valknut, is part of Norwegian tradition, but it is it tied to another symbol, first of all. And secondly, it's, uh, it's much later. And also uh, seems to have Christian connotations with the saint uh, being called St. John's Cross. So um, that's where that thing actually stands as a symbol. Um, whatever it uh, meant to, to these people 
um, uh, back then is, um, is you know, we, we, we don't really know. But uh, we can say, though, that um, uh, if we look at those depictions on the picture stones and, and such, um, we're seeing um, warriors hanging from uh, trees. We're seeing uh, retinues of warriors. We're seeing human sacrifice. We're seeing birds. And we're seeing uh, also Odin's eight-legged horse. Whether or not it actually belongs to Odin on these stones, we're not entirely sure. Um, there are some suggestions that it may be Freyr or it may be a warrior and so on. But that whole uh, culture of, of, um, of these uh, picture stones definitely ties into a warrior cult and definitely has a lot to do with like this concept of being Vikings, right? Another thing that we also see on those are the ships and Viking ships and Vikings going to war. So, you know, it's not impossible that the symbol is somehow tied to Odin. Um, it's, um, it's a possibility, but it's, of course, as a scholar, I wouldn't, you know, put my head on the block for, uh, for, <laughs> for, that, uh, for that notion. There can be many different interpretations of it. Um, and yeah, it's, as I mentioned before, uh, one of the things that we're seeing quite often is uh, uh, nowadays is sort of um, a modern mythology where um, uh, I have, for instance, seen these depictions of that uh, so-called Valknut symbol, um, the three triangles interlaced with one another. And then people write, you know, Ausgader, uh, Niflheimer, um, Svadalheimer, and Vanaheimer, and so on, on the, um, the 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 points of it, right? And um, that is, of course, a modern interpretation that has very little to do with the ways that it, that symbol was used back then, and also, you know, the ways that people thought about the mythology. As I mentioned just before, this idea of the nine Norse worlds is. Uh, very, uh, very loose interpretation based off of a bunch of names that Snorri Sturluson primarily gives in his Edda about like where dwarves and where giants and where gods and humans live and so on. And not all of these places existed in the minds of the Vikings, I'm sure. Um, some of them probably did, but not all of them. <laughs> that sounds like a whole other episode to go down right oh, now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> so, so from my understanding, it seems that like a lot of things, and something that we're probably going to say repeatedly on this podcast through numerous episodes, is that you just have to be comfortable accepting that there is a lot we don't know, and sometimes you just gotta. It, it sucks, <laughs> but you've just gotta. You've got to be willing to just be like, you know, we're not sure. Well, I mean, you know what? For for all the time I spend debunking uh, uh, ways people are using this stuff nowadays, uh, I think it's also important to say that you know it's it's valid to uh, to to make your own version of it now, right? Um, and be conscious about where things come from, and also be responsible with the way that you use these things. But uh, I don't think there's anything wrong, for instance, in, in tying the idea of the symbol, the Valknut, into uh, the idea of uh, nine Norse worlds. If, if that's something that has meaning to you, then go for it. Um, but uh, but there's, there's a, of course, a difference between talking about what people 
are doing now and how they perceive all of these things compared to, you know, what is the historical evidence that we have and what might have been the case back then. Yeah, I think I think that happens so often is where a modern um, interpretation of something is just taken as fact and it gets lost. I mean, there's a beautiful, I think I personally think there's a beautiful thing in having this symbol that people can, they can look at, you know, they can go back and look at where you can find it, you know, in the historical books and, and the artifacts and they can then take their own meaning from that and assign their own kind of feelings to that. And it's a beautiful thing in that. But you've also got to be careful in then putting that across as, as historical fact. You've got to be able to separate the two and not and not kind of tell people that it's 100% is this when it might not be. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, yeah, it's uh, uh, as, long, as long as you're you're separating the two, right? And you know, there's also a difference between what you do as a, a as a private person, right? And then what a, a museum represents, right? Mm-hmm. The big difference. And and as long as the museums get it right, then it's fine. You know, then then yeah. I think people can do whatever they want with their symbols. You know, as exactly. long as I mentioned, as long as they're being responsible with it. <laughs> Yeah, let's not go down the whole life. Oh no, 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 no. Again. <laughs> not again, not again. <laughs> um, okay, so that's the the Valknut. Um, so let's move on to the Egishmiller. I've probably not pronounced that right. The helm of all most people know it as. So surely this one has to have some ties back to to the Viking Age. <laughs> and for okay. those who for those who can't see Matthias just open his eyes wide open his eyes widely and kind of give me a stare. <laughs> okay, so actually uh there is a little more uh is, is sort of uh source evidence for the helm of awe as it is called. Um Do you want to do you want to pronounce it properly? Since I, I, bu- I probably bush- butchered it. Yeah. Aishalmer. <laughs> okay. okay, so um, we know it from uh, Snorri Sturluson's Edda. And, uh, this is actually the portion of his Edda where he gives the uh, account of uh, Sigurd the Dragon Slayer. And um, it shows up in the uh, sort of the prelude to Sigurd the Dragon Slayer's story. Um, of course, you know, the whole story about Sigurd the Dragon Slayer revolves around uh, a golden ring that brings misfortune to everybody. That's that's really where where, where all this calamity comes from. Um, this is also where Tolkien got his uh, uh, one ring to rule them all from. And um, what uh, what we're told is is that uh, um, this is a longer narrative about uh, a peasant named Hreithma, who's sort of a wizard, and he uh, tricks Loki. And um, and then he ends up with the golden ring, and then um, he is uh, um, uh, he's killed by his son Fafnir, who then turns into a dragon. And um, uh, what it says here is that um, uh, blah blah blah, um, Fafnir had now got hold of a helmet that had belonged to Hreidma and put it on his head. It was known as Aishalmur, terror helmet, and uh, all creatures are afraid of it when they see it. And that's it. 
<laughs> so apparently it's a helmet. <laughs> okay. So that's where everything we know about the helmet off comes from. Yeah. <laughs> um I mean, it's uh, the, the, the way that it's phrased is, of course, a little curious. Like uh, when everybody sees it, they're afraid of it. So if nothing else, it's not a symbol, it's a helmet. Um, yeah, I've, I mean, I've heard all different kind of explanations or theories. Um, one, of, one of the wild ones I heard was that it was a helmet, but it had a lead symbol on the, the front which was the, the symbol that we commonly know as a helm of awe, which also I get people calling it the snowflake yeah. over and over when people, when it comes to carving horns and that kind of thing, people are asking me the snowflake symbol or something along those lines. But, but I think the idea that was explained to me was, you know, a piece of lead in, in the shape of this, the, the symbol was on the front of the helmet. Um, I think that theory was that the lead in some way, in, in in the same way that it would make, it made the Hatters mad, you know, the the idea of having the the lead rim in the in the old top hats used to make the London Hatters mad, which is where you get the mad hat from. The same the same theory of that of having this piece of lead close to the head would have that maddening effect on on the wearer. I'm not sure if you've ever heard of that before. Yeah, that yeah, one? I have. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so that's not one that's, that, that somebody just just threw at me that was completely. No, no, it's. Uh, I mean, it, it, that's that's what happens, right? That, that you know what we're seeing right here is folklore in progress. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's, there's there's a guy back in the 13th century. He writes a story and mentions his helm of all. Then uh, somebody somewhere decides to. Uh, take a much later um, Icelandic magic symbol and uh, call that uh, the Helm of Awe. And then, you know, this gets popularized. And then people start making up theories. And that's, 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 that's right there is, is a great example of, 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 you know, in the perfect style of folklore, making a theory about what is actually going on here. Somebody mm-hmm. trying to rationalize the bits and pieces of stories that they have heard. And then there you go. Nice, neat little package. That's exactly how people did back in the Viking age, in the medieval period and later periods as well. So, you know, it's in that sense, it's a continuation of a longstanding tradition. Okay. <laughs> That's the redeeming aspect of all of this that, you know, um, we have to, uh, we have to leave this, um, when we talk about modern use of, of symbols and myths and so on, we have to leave this idea that there is an original out there. Because this is use. And there is very little difference in that sense between modern use and Viking Age use of all of these things. And it's, it's a constant process developing and evolving um, with the way that humans think. And I don't think there's anything wrong in that. Um, but of course, you know, that's, that's different from where do things actually come from. <laughs> so is it safe to say that the, the actual symbol that we know as the Helm of Awe is more of a modern, almost a modern, modern representation of 
the the helmet that he spoke kind of in Snorri's does and yeah so so I think um I think there is um that simple that that some of your uh, uh customers call a, a snowflake um <laughs> That's uh, that's one of these many symbols that we find in Icelandic manuscripts. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, I, I can't remember this exactly, but I think if I'm not mistaken, uh, there is one of these, in one of these manuscripts, uh, one of these symbols that, that is called Ais Yalmur, uh, the helm of all. This is, of course, somebody um, in later times, uh, I believe in the 19th century, maybe in the 18th century, who, of course, knew of Snorri Sturluson's stories and then applied that uh, name to that symbol. Mm -hmm. um, so, so that's how that has come into being, so to speak. Um, yeah, so um, I talked a little bit about that uh, um, um, interlaced square symbol that uh, Scandinavians nowadays use as, as a symbol for uh, some kind of noteworthy historical site. In, on road signs, um, which is part of a you know a, a typical, a traditional uh, ornamentation on textiles from Norway at least, but I believe also other parts of Scandinavia. And this one is also sometimes by Scandinavians at least uh, referred to as uh, uh, the heart of Hrungnir. Um, and um, and again, th this comes from um, uh, Snorri Sturluson's story about Thor's duel with the with the giant Hrungnir, um, where we're told that um, uh, Hrungnir had a heart um, of solid stone, and it says um, he, he he writes Hrungnir had a heart that is renowned, made of solid stone and spiky with three points, just like the simple. Uh, for carving called Hrungnir's heart as ever since been made before. And this is just going back to the Valknut. This has also been interpreted as the Valknut because he says okay. there has three spikes. But um, but it's often conflated with that uh, square interlaced symbol um, that, that we also see. And again, of course, the situation is that we don't really know. We don't know what uh, what what symbol... Uh, Snorri is referring to here. He could be referring to that, um, 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 uh, the, the three triangles that are interlaced, um, if he knew about it, but we don't know if he did. So that's, uh, that's also just a, a little note uh, to keep in mind that there is the heart of Hrunia out there. And again, people have been making up a lot of different stories about what that might actually be. Mm -hmm. Oh. Right, so let's move on to the last one, and maybe one of the most controversial, and um, certainly one of the most popular symbols, and um, definitely the one that we get asked to carve the most and put on different items of jewelry and that kind of thing is is the Vegvisia. Um, so you pull it up base again, so let's uh, let's jump straight into it. Yeah, so I mentioned before, um, there are uh, plenty of versions of, of like this, um, you know, uh, it's, a, it's, it's two crosses on each other, right? Um, 
where you uh, then you know end up with eight prongs, and then uh, you have uh, so uh, different uh, sort of uh, staves or whatever you can call them at the ends of them. There are plenty of these types of uh, of, of crosses from uh, Icelandic manuscripts. Um, Vevi is, is one of them, and it's found in the Huld manuscript, which is from the 1860s. So fairly late. And then you can go to um, the, the the books of sorcery. Um, um, we have a uh, we have some. That, so so these start being produced from the 1500s and onwards. Um, of course, to note down magical symbols being used for witchcraft and so on during the witch scare in all of Europe, right? And, and, and there we see so many different versions of that type of symbol. Um, I have, um, I have picked, uh, in, I just uh, picked up the, um, uh, the manuscript that has the uh, sexy title LBS 2413HVO. Yes. Uh, where you have a similar-looking symbol that then um, has the little text that's uh, in English says, to damage a horse with a man riding it, carve on the loin with the long finger of your left hand. And if you uh, go to another manuscript, you can see similar symbols um, where the text goes for, for another very, very similar-looking symbol. So you'll fish. Carve on the uh, the thole with an awl and besmear with your blood. So here we have that uh, similar type of Vavisa looking symbol being used, one for cursing somebody's horse and the other one for having luck while fishing. And we have so many versions of this symbol out there. Um, even in... Um, um, uh, this... Very interesting uh, book uh, from the 1940s made by a man who used uh, um, uh, the name Skuki. His real name was Joachim Magnus Eckertsson. Um, he wrote uh, a, a book on um, uh, Galder, his own, his own Galder system, basically. Um, and it is translated, you can get it from Iceland. Uh, it's called the Sorcerer's Screed in English. And he has uh, the, the uh, VVC India as well. And it's uh, on page 126. And it's uh, noted as the waymark. And he writes, carry this stave with you and you will hardly ever lose your way in a storm or die of exposure and will find your way even if you are unfamiliar with a place. And it looks like he sort of has picked this up from um, that same tradition that belongs to the Huld manuscript from the 1860s. Now, I'm saying that same tradition because I can't verify if he actually read that manuscript or he knew it from somewhere else. But it looks like they all belong to the same tradition, right? And that is a tradition that we see in Iceland and elsewhere where you make these... Uh, in, in many cases, very elaborate marks. And you can sort of compare them to like the popular uh, uh, sort of uh, representation of witches in, in various stories. If you have seen um, uh, Tim Burton's Sleepy Hollow, right? 
um, there's a scene where um, our, a good detective, Ichabod Crane, goes up um, in, into a, uh, someone's bedroom and then he pulls out a, uh, the bed and then underneath that bed there is this uh, elaborate satanic-looking symbol, right? That's the kind of stuff we're dealing with here. Um, that's, uh, that's what we're seeing in all of these uh, uh, Icelandic manuscripts. A lot of these symbols have very, very strong Christian connotations. And uh, some of them have some kind of like runic influence on them. And, um, and yeah, they, they belong to a, you know, a, an at least 500-year-old tradition. So in that sense, I mean, sure, we get those uh, symbols from, from very late manuscripts, but uh, I mean, it's still pretty cool, right? <laughs> but we can't say that they're from the Viking Age, though. They don't have, they, it's not possible to verify that they have a link to the Viking Age. So, it's, yeah, so it's not, we don't have any evidence that they, they were around or it was used in the Viking Age. So it's not, you know, it's not possible to say that, but it's not impossible to say that it could be something that had been spread and just, you know, kept alive and then finally written down in in the 1860s. It does. This, this is where scholars get a little annoying, if you ask me, because uh, uh, we have we have a tendency to favor the positivistic perspective on things, and that is like. You know, we can only go as far back as, you know, we can attest a symbol's existence, for instance, in a manuscript or in epigraphic inscriptions on stones or something like that. And, um, and that's, 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 of course, you know, to safeguard ourselves and our, um, our position as, uh, as people of knowledge. We don't want to say too much. Um, but, I mean... You know, if you, if you look at this in, 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 in another perspective, uh, as, as this perspective of historical continuation, a continuum of, of, of symbolic traditions and so on in Scandinavia and elsewhere, then I think you could, say, you could probably say that, you know, parts of this uh, Sigil tradition, as you could call it, from the, uh, from the Icelandic manuscripts, has its roots in, in an older tradition. Again, I'm, I'm being a cautious scholar here. <laughs> um, if, if we have bind runes before the Viking Age, we don't have many from, from the Viking Age, some like the Rurikstone, but uh, not many. And then we have bind runes after the Viking Age again. Um, you know, it's, it's not impossible to say that, this, uh, that these uh, um, uh, magic symbols that show up in, uh, in, in these Icelandic manuscripts have some kind of connection to a long-standing tradition of making symbols in different ways, and it is a, it's of course a, a tradition that evolves, and from the medieval period and almost becomes very influenced by Christianity as well. There, there are plenty of different kinds of crosses, references to to, to God and and saints and and all that stuff in them as well. Um, if we see this as a tradition that um, you know, has has a certain meaning in pre-Christian Scandinavia in, in context of uh, bind runes and probably also other types of symbols and other ways of doing magic that we don't know of now because 
they have died out or 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 been killed basically by 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 conversion to Christianity, and then then they uh, they they move on and and develop under uh, under Christianity as folk practices. And then I don't think there's anything wrong in saying that uh, that that these types of symbols have some kind of connection. Um, but that's very different from saying, of course, that they are pagan, uh, mm-hmm. that they are from the Viking Age, and that they had meaning to people before Christianity. Um, but it is, you know, sort of like more of a, in a broader sense, part of a folk practice um, of using symbols and doing magic, which is something that people have always done and probably always will do. I mean, people are doing it today, right? In, in, in different ways. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I think that's probably quite a neat little place to to wrap this up at. Um, I think sometimes with this podcast, we might open more questions than we solve. But I think our, our goal with this was always to try and get rid of some of the misconceptions and and just to to get more historical facts out there, obviously you're a wealth of, of knowledge when it comes to this kind of stuff. So it's, you know, it, it's so hard to shift, uh, to sift through all this, all this different material out there and not, you don't always know what's, what's true. So whilst sometimes we leave stuff quite ambiguous and without putting it in a neat little box and putting it to one side, hopefully we're kind of getting across the, the, the truths of what we do know, and sometimes what we do know is a case of of knowing very little and saying and and being okay with that and accepting that we know very little and and then just having to kind of work your own own little bit out yeah, I mean you know from my perspective, you know part of uh delivering quality knowledge to people is 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 to say this is a complex mess. That you know, you can you can go read a book where somebody represents all of this in a nice, neat little way, and and talk from a place of authority. But you know, in many ways, I think uh, you show greater respect to people's intelligence by saying, you know, what is 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 not necessarily that simple. And also, I, as a scholar, I've been researching this stuff for what fifteen years, and um, I don't know all things about this and I I can't just go and tell you oh uh, I have this title so therefore um, uh, this simple uh, called the vague here has nothing to do with Vikings and it's completely irrelevant if you if you are somebody who are into you know the, the pre-christian Scandinavian culture uh, so 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 stop getting it tattooed and stop having it on horns and stop doing all that stuff that doesn't make any sense to me because you know people People have the right to use things, and then and and it's also there is some kind of continuation in culture. Uh, it's not like uh, when the Scandinavians became Christians, they just stopped doing all the things that they were doing before. And it is not like that. Oh, oh, because you know, m- uh, myths about Thor show up in in uh, 1500s ballads. And uh, and and later ballads in 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 in, in Faroese and oh we can see that oh that ballad from the Faroe Islands that that talks about Thor 
uh, that is just like a, a, a modern uh, 19th century recreation and has nothing to do with the Viking Age. Of course, it has something to do with the Viking Age because if nothing else, the people who decided to make that ballot back then in the 19th century, they, of course, were thinking of the Viking Age. They were reusing material in different ways. Um, so, so in that sense, you know, talking about um, broken traditions that scholars like to talk about, I don't really agree with that. Because um, when you take up something from back then and you give it a new meaning, of course, um, now, that's, that's a continuation of tradition um, in some sense or another, right? So that also means, like I said last time when we were talking about runes, yeah, we can see runes being used from, you know, uh, 150, 80, and then, you know, it goes, goes all the way through the Viking Age and, and the early medieval period. And then scholars like to say, and then it stops. Um, and then comes the antiquarian tradition where we have these uh, scholars who are like looking back and then re reapplying. And then we have the 19th century where people in a more popularized sense are using runes. And now we have modern times where you, uh, runes are being used in so many different ways. And so, so the scholars like to make that distinction between when the, the, the old scholars in the 1600s take it up as, as an antiquarian tradition and say that that has nothing to do with the, you know, what happened in the medieval period the Viking Age and before then. But I'd like to say, you know, actually, that's part of a continuum. Um, it's not an antiquarian tradition uh, any more than it's uh, than, than, than the medieval period was, or the Viking Age for that matter. It's a, still a use of runes, right? In the same way, these things are still a use of symbols. And mm -hmm. people put meaning into those symbols based on, you know, their perspective on the world. And nowadays, we also have a revival of paganism. Um, also true in, in Iceland and, and uh, its uh, various cousins in Scandinavia that's also popular in Germany and, and, and the UK and, and the US for that matter and these people yeah sure they're, they're modern people who are using some historical knowledge that they have reading various kinds of books listening to our podcast and all that stuff and then using this stuff and that's part of con continuing a tradition it's not a. It's not like they. Uh, we're just, you know, uh, these people are just picking something up from, uh, from a clean uh, slate and then reinventing everything. It's that there is some there is some aspect of continuation in all of this. Yes, that's an excellent point because I think just because we're in the current era now doesn't mean that in five hundred years time people aren't going to look back on how people now use the runes and look at that in the same way that we look at the medieval people using the runes. It is just a continuation and it's been used for different purposes and, and but it's still a use of, of something like say as a tradition. So yeah, that's a, I think, I think that's a very beautiful way to, to wrap this up. I think that's a good kind of the, I agree, and uh, you know, just one last thing before we. Before we <laughs> this is uh, something I'd uh, uh, I'd suggest a, a little a little book that you pick up when you go to Iceland on your tourist trip. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you're leaving again. Is the the beginning of January? Middle of January, January. Yeah. The, well, January the eleventh, we're going. Yeah, 
and um, you know you can get this um, this nice little yellow book in the um, um, in the bookstores in Iceland. It's called Icelandic Magic for Modern Living, and here we have sort of a, a, a continuation again of the these uh, interesting uh, magic symbols where you can, uh, um, for instance, there's the Stava Staver. Um, uh, which is called the stave to choose an Icelandic magic stave uh, for your next tattoo. And uh, <laughs> there's the Snalvi uh, Stavur, uh, uh, which is the stave to get rid of tourists. Watch out for that one. <laughs> is there um, a stave in there that stops my... My wife being angry because she's hungry whilst we've been making the podcast. <laughs> um, Is there? <laughs> please tell me there's one of them in the in the back of there. There's probably one in there somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> I could use that right about now. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. Well, you better get on with uh, and uh, and make some dinner for your wife. That's it. Exactly. <laughs> um, no, this has been fun. I think. Hopefully people don't get too upset by, you know, by what we talk about. Because at the end of the day, people do have these symbols tattooed on them. I personally, you know, I have the, the Wagner on my hand. You know, it, it's something that people do get tattooed and it means something to people. So hopefully, you know, we're not trying to upset and take away anything from anybody. We, you know, at the end of the day, you can attach your own meanings to these things. And the, the more or, or the less that we know and the less that we can say 100% what these things are, it, it, it's a beautiful thing that it allows people to to kind of adapt them for themselves and put their own meanings to them and, and enjoy them how they want them to be enjoyed. And as long as you treat them with respect, then who are we other than two fools on a podcast talking <laughs> about symbols? Exactly. No, I completely agree with that. I mean... Uh... Put the meaning that you feel like into these symbols. Um, that use them the way you want to use them. If they have uh, significant meaning to you, then uh, you don't have to care about what we're saying here or what some scholar wrote, wrote in the book. That's 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 for you to 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 do with as you as you please. They're part of you know a cultural heritage, and cultural heritage shifts and changes meanings all the time. Absolutely. And so we're going to be back in a couple of weeks um, and we're going to do a Christmas special or a Yule special, Yule, however you want to pronounce it, whatever it is to you. Um, the smile on your face says that you've got a lot to say. Oh, I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, it should, be, it should be a good one, I'm sure. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, thank you to everybody for, for listening. It's been a good one. Hopefully you've all enjoyed it again. Yeah, thank you all for uh, being with us. And thank you for uh, the great reviews that we've been getting on our podcast lately. We're very grateful for that. Absolutely, that's a good point. Um, so if you, do, if you do enjoy it, then you can please leave us a five-star review and, um, yeah, five stars and a nice review. That would be amazing. Obviously, it helps us get picked up on the charts. Um, I think we're, we're doing pretty well. I think we... Last time I looked, we were chatting, I think, like 160th for history podcasts in the USA and 101st for history podcasts in Great Britain, which we think is pretty pretty amazing. We're happy with it. So, so thank you very much. Yeah, thank you all for your support.
person, I have little to pretty much no understanding of any other language. So when I look at, you know, some of the, the words and the, the names of people, the names of places, and you see these different letters that, that don't exist in our language, let alone the sounds. Mm-hmm. So that adds like an extra level of confusion to trying to learn because you can't even kind of fathom how to say some of the words in your own head, let alone then try and understand everything else. So I think hearing how they are said, at least people then when they do their own reading kind of will go, okay, well, that's how it was said. So even if they kind of sort of pronounce it the same way, yeah, they've at least got something in their head that they can strap to that visual and go, right, well, that makes it a little bit easier going yeah. forward. Yeah, hopefully it helps. Um, but then again, I mean, uh, personally, I, I, I feel like um, if that's something when you're reading, if, if that's something that confuses you, then gloss it over. Just go <laughs> and then, then that's go what on I do. from there. <laughs> yeah. That's <laughs> because, what I've been doing. It's been all these different kind of noises have been going on. I'm just like, I have no idea. <laughs> Some of them I'm just like, oh, I'm not even going to try. And, and that is very understandable. <laughs> <laughs> that's why it's so impressive when I see you just kind of roll them off your tongue. I'm like, what? Well, I mean, I, I mean, I sometimes I also make mistakes. I just realized that I, uh, in one of the videos I had made, I, I was, uh, I added an extra syllable to, uh, to an Icelandic uh, place name and, uh, you know, that kind of stuff. I mean, I'm not an Icelandic native speaker. So, mm-hmm. so, you know, I mean, I also sometimes make, make mistakes and, and so on, but that's how language works. You know, yeah. it, um, it is language seems daunting. Um, when, when you look at it from the outside, but at some point, you know, uh, you also become familiar with it. And, and, and ultimately language is a, you know, a, a it's, it's, it's just a, a tool to communicate. And if, if things work out, then that's fine. You know, even with mistakes. <laughs> yeah, and um, so we've discussed the Shieldmaidens, the Valkyries. We've gone into death on the Brunhild. And it's been a fun one. It's been educational. Hopefully you guys have enjoyed it as well. And you'll be back for the next one.